there's a uh, Swedish proverb that goes like this. Shared joy is a double joy. Shared sorrow is half a sorrow. Shared joy is a double joy. Shared sorrow is half a sorrow. The 19th century British preacher J.C. Ryle echoed this when he said this. This world is full of sorrow because this world is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joy. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. These statements, church, are not only true but necessary for you to cling to and pursue the reality that we see in those statements if you are to grow in Christ-likeness. If you are to grow in your Christian walk, if you are to look more like Jesus, those concepts, that friendship, community, halves our sorrows and doubles our joys, that is something that we need to both cling to and believe and pursue if we are to grow in Christ-likeness. Where our joys are doubled by the community in which we exist as our experience of God's goodness is multiplied to us as we do life with one another. And our sorrows are halved as we walk with each other through difficulty and through affliction and through pain. If you would, turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. We are in the middle of a series going through this book. 2 Corinthians, we find ourselves looking at pretty much the whole chapter uh, of chapter 7 this morning. Actually, pick it up in verse 2. I think Garrett covered verse 1 last week. We'll pick it up in verse 2 and go through verse 16. But in this passage that we'll look at this morning, we are going to, to see that kind of community that I just talked about. We're going to see that kind of community in action as Paul rejoices about various aspects of his relationship with the Corinthians, difficult though they are at times. Here's what I'd like for us to walk away with this morning is that joy and comfort are found in Christian community. Joy and comfort are found in Christian community. As we look at the text, there's going to be kind of three main sections that, that I think you'll notice uh, as he's talking about joy, as he's talking about comfort as we go throughout the text together. So we'll have a three-part outline as we look at this together. So joy and comfort are found in Christian community as, number one, we experience the relationships that community provides. Number two, as we experience the repentance that community provides. And number three, as we experience the refreshment that community provides. You'll see it dripping throughout this whole passage. Paul's focus on his joy, his comfort, and his relationship with the Corinthians, and even in Titus's experience with them. But in such a way that joy and comfort are found in this Christian community as we have those things, relationship, repentance, and refreshment. Look at the text with me. I'll read it. You can follow along in your copy of God's word. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said it before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. 
For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what, earnest, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Number one, joy and comfort are found in relationships. Joy and comfort are found in relationships. Our text begins there, if you look at verse 2, with, with a plea from Paul to the Corinthians. He says, make room in your hearts for us. If you have your Bible, you can glance up earlier in this passage. That may sound familiar, up in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, where he says something very similar. He says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, widen your hearts also. Our hearts are open to you. Open your hearts to us. And he says that here in verse 2 again. Make room in your hearts for us. And so Paul's desire is for the Corinthians not to have any sort of relational wall between him and them. Right? He doesn't want them to, to, to squeeze out room in their hearts and their affections for him. And he gives three quick reasons why, if you look at your text, he says, we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, and we've taken advantage of no one. Wronged no one. He, he's saying, we, we haven't acted unjustly towards you in any of our dealings. Paul says, I've acted with your good in mind at all times. We've corrupted no one. He says, we, we haven't been immoral before you in any way. We haven't acted in such a way to lead you away from God, but always to lead you toward God. We've taken advantage of no one. He says we, we haven't been manipulative or abusive or, or used our position for any, any sort of gain with you. He says this is the way you know that we've acted among, uh, in your midst. Open your hearts to us as we've opened our hearts to you. And so he says that there's no reason not to accept me, not to show me affection. Verse 3, if you look there, he says, I'm not, he's not trying to blame them. He's not trying to condemn them. 
Rather, he's just offering a vision to them of what their partnership and what their relationship and what their friendship can look like. It's going to be really, really important because next week, a big, a big uh, kind of point in this letter is that he is uh, writing to them for the, to, to complete a collection, a financial collection that was being taken for churches uh, that, that were in need. And he's about to get into that, but he's establishing first, like, like, we're not taking advantage of anybody. We have this partnership, this relationship. So before I get to that money stuff, I just want to remind you of, of the affection that we have for you and the affection that we are calling for you to have with us. So he's calling on them to, to reciprocate that kind of Christ-centered relational affection that he feels for them. Because on his part, verse 3, says, I, I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So he, he says, the, the Greek word there is, is kind of co-living and co-dying. So he says, I, the, the way I view our relationship, he says, you know, I have you, I've told you this before, you are in our hearts to co-die, to co-live, to die together, to live together. Now, if that is really interesting, if that language sounds familiar, that living with and dying with, it's because Paul uses it elsewhere, but he uses it in reference to Christ. So Paul, in 2 Timothy, listen to this, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, he says this, The saying is trustworthy. If we had died with him, same Greek word, kind of co-die. If we have died with him, meaning if we have died with Jesus, we will also live with him. Romans chapter 6, verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. The only other time Paul uses that language is in reference to his kind of vertical union with Jesus. That if we are in Christ, if we have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, we have, we have union with Christ. We are one with him. We've died with him and we have risen with him to walk with him. We've died to our sin just as he died in our place on the cross for us. And we, we've died in that way. And then we've risen to new life to walk with him. And so Paul uses those same words typically reserved for speaking about union with Christ. And he applies them to his relationship with the Corinthians. And so for Paul, su such union that we have this, this kind of uh, mystical, mysterious union that we have. It's not just vertically with Jesus, though that's true. But because of that vertical relationship that we have with Jesus, that union is true horizontally as well. Not just a union with Jesus, but then a union with Jesus' people. And so he's reminding them of this. And again, you'll see why in a second. Because he, he wrote them a pretty sharp letter. And, and he's, he's reminding listen, we are one. We, we are ready to live together and to die together. So he's using those same words. When we are saved, we are united with Christ. Right? That, that's, that's the good news of, of Christianity. Not that you have to go out and try to figure out kind of salvation on your own or you got to go out and, and do certain things and work for it or, or God just kind of tosses life to us and says, hey, you guys mess around with it, figure it out like a grenade. Like here, just take that and figure it out on your own. No, that's not what he does. He, he says this is, this is the way that, that we have, uh, as he, he tells us that we are to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. And when we do that, we have union with the very Son of God. We are co-heirs with Jesus, all his inheritance, ours. And we're also united with Christ's people. That understanding of their relationship leads Paul, this is his point, to, he says, that has led me to act a certain way with you. That's led me to act in a very specific way towards them, he says in verse 4. Actually, I think there's kind of four results there of their relationship, this co-dying, this union with one another. And all four of these are, uh, are in the superlative. All, right, all of these have kind of have an intensifier uh, word to them. So if you look, it's great boldness, great pride, filled with comfort, overflowing with joy. 
So, so th- these results of their relationship, he has great boldness, he says there in verse 4. One commentary that I read this week said that, uh, as they were explaining this idea of great boldness, said this. I, I like the way this is put. It says there's, there's a frankness and a communicational transparency that doesn't weigh every word with hidden calculation. Don't you know that to be true of your best friends? <laughs> there, there's a transparency You've been in relationships and in groups before where you're like, I don't feel like anybody in here is saying what they really think. I don't feel like I can actually be honest and be who I am. But then you have other friends. It may be the first time you've met each other, but there's something that just clicks. And you're like, there's, there's something there. I feel like I can be myself with you. I'm not on guard. I'm not on eggshells. I'm not worried about saying the wrong thing. I haven't heard you talk about a bunch of other people, so I'm worried that you're going to be talking about me when I leave the room. Like, there's, there's, a, there's a relational equity and a... And a uh, it's an, there's, a, again, a frankness or a communicational transparency that doesn't weigh every word with hidden calculation. That's what Paul is saying. He says the relationship that we have and this union that we have, he says, that's why I've acted with great boldness toward you. I've felt the freedom to do that because I love you and because I feel like we're one. And he says, I have great pride. He loves to brag on the Corinthians <laughs> because he knows who they can be. Not because they're so great. My goodness, read 1 Corinthians, read, read uh, 2 Corinthians. The letter that we don't have that we're going to talk about in a minute. Like, they had some issues. But, he's, but he loves to brag on them because he knows that they have a desire to walk with Jesus. He knows they have a desire to, 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 to look like him and to glorify him and to magnify him. So there's great pride in them. He, know, he knows he's confident in them. Because they love Jesus and they want to look more like him. Filled with comfort, he says. The same word there, comfort, is the same word that we have for encouragement. The word will be seven times in this passage, but he feels great encouragement from them. Great comfort because of their relationship. He's overflowing with joy. Joy and rejoicing. That, that, that some variation of that word will be used five times in this passage. Joy and rejoicing. He has such affection for these people. DRBC, do you, do you feel this way about anybody in your life? Have this as an aspirational goal. Have this as an aspirational goal. Find your people. Now listen, it, I, I know it's hard. My encouragement is just don't give up. <laughs> in the, the last two places that, that Kim and I have lived, both when we, we lived in China uh, initially and then when we moved here, I mean, it, it honestly, it takes two, three years, sometimes to finally start to click, to finally start to hit a stride, to finally know who those people are. So, so don't be discouraged in that. But, but, but this, is, this is who God is calling us to be in the people of God. Such relationships aren't, aren't always quickly formed, but pray that you'd view your church more and more in this light, in the same way that Paul does, that, that of, a, of a boldness together, that, that there's a conversational frankness together. There's a communicational transparency. There's a great pride that we have in one another. There's joy and comfort and encouragement that we derive from one another as we are in this church together, knowing that, that this is, we are all just broken sinners coming and looking at God's word and trying to encourage each other to follow Jesus more and more. This is who we are. I have great pride in you. I want to brag on you. I want to take great comfort and encouragement from all the evidences of grace that we see in each other's lives. Have this idea in your, in your friend groups or in your fellowship groups. And some fellowship groups will meet tonight. This is the goal. 
And, and as I mean, commercial for those who are in fellowship groups, we run those things for nine months. It's very easy meeting every other week to, to, to kind of come up towards the end of that and be like, man, I, just, I feel like we're just now, after nine months, starting to click, starting to have the relationship. My encouragement to fellowship group leaders and to all of you who are in those groups, work as hard as you can to expedite that experience. Work as hard as you can to have that sort of relationship happening earlier. That you're not waiting until month number seven to finally open up about where you're struggling. That you're not waiting until month number eight to finally invite that other family over for dinner once. Do it now. Dig in. Build those relationships. Grab somebody this morning that you've never met. Or somebody you're like, man, I've been meaning to get together with them. Pursue those types of relationships. This, this is what we are called to do in the church. And I think maybe if we can't say this about anybody, right? Paul says, man, I feel great boldness about you. I feel great pride. I feel great comfort. I feel great joy. If, we, if, if, if I can't say that about anybody, maybe it's because I would never say that about anybody. Because, because I'm not willing to open up enough. I'm not willing to be transparent enough. I, I, I don't, I, I, it's awkward for me to talk about how proud I am of somebody. It's weird for me to say, man, I love you. It's strange for, for me to, to, to derive comfort and joy from somebody else's life. Because I'm always focused on my own, my own little kingdom and, and what is going on in my life. So if we can't say that, maybe it's because we would never say that. And we just pray for the humility and the, and the, the, um, the prompting of the spirit to pursue exactly what Paul is laying out for us here. So church, make room in your hearts. Overlooking offenses. Overlooking differences, overlooking secondary and tertiary issues, secondary and tertiary identities, and remembering that Jesus is the glue. Jesus is the glue in our church. Jesus is the glue in your friend circle. Jesus is the glue in your fellowship group. Jesus is the glue. So room in your heart it has to do with not squeezing out space in your affections for anyone else. And so apply that. God, I, God help me to not... Squeeze out room in my affections, in my heart for other people that are around me. And maybe that encouragement to, to make room in your heart, that, that could very tangibly look like making room in your schedule. Making room in your rhythms of life. Making room at your dinner table. Making room as you go to the gym or run errands or go to your kids' sporting events. Making room to invite other people in and pursue those relationships. It is critical to our walk before Jesus. If, if we want joy and comfort that he gives, one of the ways he's going to do it is through relationships in the church. Through relationships where we say, listen, I'm ready to co-die and co-live. <laughs> because different as we may be, I'm not only united to Jesus, I'm united with you. Number two, and this will be our longest point. We'll, we'll spend the most time here really just following the, the model of the text. Paul spends most time on this. Joy and comfort are found in repentance. So joy and comfort are found in relationship. Joy and comfort are found in repentance. Let's take this bit by bit. Look at verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. It's, it's been a long time, uh, probably a distant memory by now, but I referred to these verses in an earlier sermon that I preached in this series, now all the way back in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. 
Paul talks, I don't know if you remember, but talk, Paul talks in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, how he had a, an open gospel door. Do you remember that? He had a, this open gospel door in Troas, but he actually turned away from that open gospel door because he didn't find Titus there. And so he went on to Macedonia to try to find Titus, and we jumped ahead and looked at these verses because this is where we jump back into that timeline. So between chapter 2 and chapter 7, where we are now, so half of chapter 2 and then 3, 4, 5, and 6, as Paul kind of going in deeper on, on what, what the Christian ministry looks like. This is his ministry, he's defending it, he's explaining it, this is what the Christian ministry looks like. Now he's jumping back into that timeline, this whole deal about not finding Titus and why that was so heartbreaking for him. All right, so, so Paul is, is, uh, is struggling, if you remember, he's struggling and he's wondering how the Corinthians are doing because he had sent them a letter that people call the severe letter. We have 1 Corinthians, we have 2 Corinthians, there's a letter in the middle that we don't have. It's been lost to history, but, it's, but uh, people refer to it as the severe letter. Paul was correcting them sharply. He was rebuking them. He was reproving them. And so he had sent off that letter uh, to, to correct them of, of dangerous error that they were in. And in part, what we know from context is that the church itself was, was being implicated in the case of an individual who was opposing Paul in some way. So Paul had this opponent, this guy was saying and doing a bunch of crazy stuff, there were false teachers in the church, and the Corinthians were in some way implicated in that individual who was opposing Paul. And so Paul sends this letter, but he hadn't heard anything back in response. So he had this open gospel door in Troas, and he's like, I need to go find Titus, because he's just torn up. How are, how are the Corinthians doing? How'd they receive my letter? Are they repenting? Are they following Jesus? Like, what is going on? And so he goes to try to get an answer to that. Again, this is a tenuous situation for Paul because not only had he just sent that letter to them, but the church had been infiltrated by people teaching things contrary to the true gospel that he taught. And his integrity and character was being called into question. So he says, how are they doing? Are they repenting and following Jesus? Did they respond well to my pointed direct rebuke? Well, verse 6, you've heard this before, two of the best words you'll read in Scripture. But God... He's torn up. He doesn't know how things are going. But God, verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast. That word there could be translated as lowly or humble. God, he comforts those who are, who, who are, who are needy and downcast and lowly and humble. And so he's got, God reached out in this place of pain, in this place of uncertainty. He reached out and he comforted Paul by the arrival of Titus. And then verse 7, Paul wasn't just comforted by Titus personally. But he was also comforted by the way that Titus was comforted. <laughs> he was comforted by the way that the Corinthians had responded to him. Specifically, Titus brought news of how they had responded favorably to Paul's severe letter. So Paul was so encouraged, because if you look at verse 7, he heard of their longing and their mourning and their zeal for Paul. So Titus brought good news. Paul, they're not angry at you. <laughs> They actually long to see you. Paul, they're, they're not bowing up against your reproof. They're actually mourning over their sin. They're not apathetic in how they're going to respond with this. They're actually responding with zeal, with passion to the correction that you gave them. You see Paul being like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like he had turned down a gospel opportunity and traveled a long way to get that news from Titus. And he says, that is a relief. But 
And this is where we need to focus some more time. It was no mere coincidence that they responded that way. It was no mere happenstance that they responded that the way they did. No, it was Paul's letter that led to their appropriate godly reaction. Look at it again, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, that only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The word grieve appears eight times in our passage. Paul knows that his letter caused them grief. He regretted it initially because it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to wound a friend, even for good reasons. It's difficult. That's not hard for you. Something's wrong. So, so he says, I regretted it at first because I, I know that that was painful you, for you, but, but only for a little bit. Only for a little while. In the final evaluation, he doesn't regret it at all because he knows that they weren't just grieved, but that they were grieved into repenting. Church, this passage is so instructive for us. Knowing the difference here between those two things, between godly grief and worldly grief, will be fundamental in your growth in Christ. It will be fundamental in your own discipleship before the Lord. It will be fundamental in your discipling others. It will be fundamental in your parenting. It will be fundamental in your counseling. It will be fundamental in just our relationships together. And again, remember, point number one, Paul laid out his relationship with him. And how he felt about them and how proud he was. And he's laying this so that he can write the kinds of things that he does. He knows he can do that because of the love that he has come from nothing but love. But we have to understand this difference. Godly grief and worldly grief, they both start off the same way. You feel bad. And that is where the paths diverge. You feel bad. And that is where you can go one of two ways. What is worldly grief? And why does it lead to death? Well, listen, the, the, the problem is that we tend to think that any grief we feel is automatically good. Right? And I feel really crummy about that thing that I said, that thing that I did, that attitude I had, the way I acted. I feel really bad about that. But since I feel bad about it, I guess that's what matters, and so I'm good. But what this text is telling us is that it is possible to feel bad about something in a bad way. It is possible to feel sorry for something in a worldly way. So you may feel bad about that email that you sent. Because you sent it to the wrong address, or it got leaked to somebody. You may feel bad about those comments that you made on social media and how combative you were. You may feel bad about that money that you gambled away on sports. You may feel bad about how much you drank at that party or how flirtatious you were with that person. You may feel bad about that thing that you looked at on the internet or that thing that you keep looking at on the internet. Kids, younger folks here at our church, you may feel bad about the way that you treated your parents. Or the way that you keep fighting with a sibling. You may feel bad about that. You 
But it's only because you were caught. It's only because you got in trouble for it. It's only because you lost something personally. Whether you lost money, you lost respect, you lost your reputation, you lost opportunity or privileges. If that's all it is, it's worldly grief. It's worldly grief. You see, worldly grief is fleshly and it's self-centered. It has to do with how we're perceived or what we lost or the fact that we got caught or the embarrassment that, we, uh, that was caused because of that rather than the heart of the matter. When uh, Kim and I were in seminary, we led a college uh, small group for our church. And there was a guy in that small group, I'll call him, I'll call him DJ. Uh, it's not his name, but I'll call him DJ. And uh, DJ, uh, was, he was a partier. And so he was at the clubs every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And he's, uh, and it's not just like DJ liked to dance. Like DJ is doing some very suspect stuff with people not wearing very much clothing and lots of beverages involved and doing all, I mean, it was, it was wild. And he's putting all of this on Facebook. Like, I mean, like you just see what he's up to. And he's putting this stuff. And people in our college group kept coming. They're like, man, have you seen what DJ was putting on there? I'm like, yeah. And finally I'm like, all right. Pull DJ, DJ aside. I was like, man, I've been meaning to talk to you. Um, I've, been, I've been seeing all the stuff that you've been putting on Facebook, and I just think we need to have a conversation about this. He goes, I know, I know, I know, I know. I need to clean up my Facebook page. I was like, no, you clean up your life. But that's what worldly grief is. That's what it does. Oh, yeah, I'm caught. I shouldn't be doing that. I know that looks the wrong way. Instead of repentance that says, I, I need, something's got to change. So there's worldly grief. And you see why Paul says in verse 10, he says that worldly grief produces death. Because it, it produces death because it doesn't cause us to reckon with our offense before a holy God. It actually doesn't put us downwind of our own stench. It doesn't lead us to deal with our heart issues. And so we don't think about our sin and we don't go to God to confess those sin because what is tr that is what is really tr truly causing a rift between us and God. And if we just feel bad for a little while and wallow in it and move on, it's worldly grief and it doesn't cause us to drive down into the heart issues of what are really going on so that we can confess those things and come before the Lord and seek restoration and reconciliation as we repent. And when that happens, I just say, read it again. The result is what? Death. Worldly grief only looks, looks at the externals and not the internal. It, it, it sees only the fruit and not the root. It, it is concerned with the symptoms of disease rather than the cause of disease. Now listen, the, the good news of Christianity <laughs> is that none of us are perfect. Right, the good news of Christianity is that all of us are, are going to have that, that fruit and we're all going to have those, those thorny ways that we respond to people. We're all going to have those things at time in our life. We're not perfect. The good news is that Jesus was perfect and we're called to trust in and follow him. But there's a repentance that follows, that accompanies that. So both, a, 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 if you can imagine, a big capital R repentance, that, that we turn from our sin and trust in him and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm turning from my sin and I'm trusting in Jesus. He is the way of salvation. He is, is, my, my, he is the way, the truth, and the life. I want to trust in Jesus. So the big R repentance that we need to do as we become Christians, as we are converted. But then there's kind of a lowercase r. 
that, that's just continual in the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of repentance. Not to be saved, we're already saved if we're in Christ. But, but as an overflow of those who are saved, we desire to walk with him closely, turn from our sin, and follow him over and over and over again. So repentance is not a work that saves us, but it is a result of us being saved, which leads us to godly grief, to godly grief. So, so we see the worldly grief, right? You, you see a picture of the worldly grief. It's only self-concerned, self-centered, absorbed in yourself. It, it feels bad for a minute, but then moves on. What does godly grief do by contrast? Well, godly grief, on the other hand, it moves us to action. Godly grief presses us to action. Godly grief causes change at the heart level. Look at the text again. Look at verse 9. It's, it's, it's so important that we note in this passage, grief is not the same thing as repentance. Let me say it again. Grief is not the same thing as repentance. Do you see that in verse 9? Grief doesn't equal repentance. Grief leads to repentance. So being torn up about something, feeling bad about something, regretting something, Wishing you could take that thing back. Desire to rewind the clock. Right? That doesn't necessarily, that doesn't equal repentance. And if we mistakenly equate the two, we're missing out on the change that God would have take place in our lives. Kevin DeYoung, one of my favorite authors, pastor in North Carolina, puts it this way. He says, regret feels bad about past sins. Repentance turns away from past sins. Most of us are content with regret. We just want to feel bad for a while, have a good cry, enjoy the cathartic experience, bewail our sin and how selfish slash stupid slash sorry we are. But we don't really want to change. We don't really want to live different than we have been. And friends, that is the key. To experience godly grief is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and hate the temptation to it, and to run away from it. That's what godly grief looks like. If you want to put sin to death and you want to take whatever action necessary to make amends and to root out the sin in our lives... And godly grief, he says in verse 10, God, that kind of grief that does that, that doesn't just feel bad, but then says, okay, I'm getting to work. <laughs> Not to save myself, but to walk as somebody who's saved. To hate the sin and to try to put it to death and to get accountability and to, to, to make my, my uh, transgressions as notorious as my sin. Which is a quote from Charles Spurgeon after the minister was disqualified. Somebody asked him, how long until he's restored, and he says, until his repentance becomes as notorious as his sin. That's what repentance does. It seeks all of the relationships, all the things that were said, all the people that were affected, and seeks to, 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 to dive into those and to make things right, to apologize, to seek forgiveness, to seek reconciliation and restoration. So, so, so we do that, and we want to root out that sin in our lives, and this godly grief leads to salvation because it puts us in the right posture before God. Again, it's not that that it's not that that repentance over and over again is what we're getting resaved, resaved, resaved. No, we're in Jesus, but that posture of repentance is the posture of a Christian. And so it shows us that we truly are who he says we are. 
Because we desire to turn continually and to pursue him and to pursue Christ's likeness. It puts us in the right posture before God, a posture of being humble and weak and needing his grace and mercy. Desiring to live like a Christian rather than just feeling bad for a minute and moving on. And verse 9, that godly grief causes us, he says, to suffer no loss. I think what he means there is that his letter pushed the Corinthians to God rather than away from God. They suffered no loss through the letter that he wrote them. Because the letter actually led them to be closer to Jesus, not further away. Because of the way they responded. Godly grief suffers no loss. It pushes us towards God, not away from him. This is exactly what it did for the Corinthians. Look at verses 11 through 13. Pick the text back up there. He says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us may be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. So verses 8 through 10 gives us the, the principle in abstract. Hey, there's a difference between worldly grief and godly grief. Right? That's the abstract principle. What we have here in 11 through 13 is giving the concrete example of what it looks like. What it looked like for them. What they did. What they do. Look at the text. It says, we, for we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. The Greek word there for earnestness means haste or speed or exertion. So he says, when you received this letter from me, they were like on the edge of their seats, wanting to, to, to take care of it. They were on the edge of their seats. They, had, they received this rebuke and they were enthusiastically ready to respond in a godly way. He goes on, but also, so the earnestness that, that, that godly grief produced in them, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. They were not apathetic about it, but quick to take action. He says, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Now again, remember that there was a, a wrongdoing perpetrated against Paul in this whole ordeal. That was part of the issue. And when Paul pointed it out, they said, oh man, he's right. <laughs> he's right. We're wrong. And so they were incensed at the wrongdoing of this person, of this opponent. They were incensed by that person. They, they, were, they were infuriated by it. They said, oh, that's absolutely right. Reminds me of the Old Testament uh, story with Josiah where they find a copy of the, the book of the law as they're cleaning out the temple. And they're like, oh, my goodness. We're, we're, we haven't been following any of this. So that's what happens. They get this letter and they're like, we're wrong. And so they, they were sincere and sober in their actions. So I said, that's why it says fear. They were very I mean, clear-minded, sober, sincere in the way that they wanted to respond. They were fervent and passionate. That's why he uses the word zeal. And they were committed to seeing a just resolution to the whole ordeal with this opponent. That's why he uses the word punishment there. So you want to know what experiencing godly grief looks like. Here's a great example. Not just feeling bad, but being moved to repentance. And repentance always has a look to it. Repentance always has a feel to it. Often in conversations uh, and pastoring over the years, that, that question will come up. Uh, talking with an individual in sin, or in, and that question, well, what does repentance look like? And sometimes you're like, it looks like something. I don't know that I can always give you, a, there's no checklist. There's no repentance checklist. 
here's all this stuff. And if you need the checklist, then that's probably a sign that your heart isn't repentant. But it's going to look like something. It's going to look like pursuing the people who were wronged. It's going to look like contrition. Like you're not just reporting your sin like you report the daily news. There's a sorrow. There's a brokenness. I can't count how many men I've said that to. I, I just want to see you broken. I know we've been meeting about this thing. We've been talking about this thing. I haven't, I haven't seen you cry yet. I haven't seen you mourn. What does repentance look like? I don't know. I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like being pompous and proud. It looks, it, it is contrite. And it mourns. It wants to follow Jesus and it doesn't want to wound the God who died in our place for all of the sin. Remember that Paul is, is talking about the great joy and comfort that he has here. He has it from their relationship with one another, generally, but he also has it from the way that they repented. So church, when we do this, when we're walking this way, it, it is a great delight and a comfort to all of us. It helps all of us to follow Jesus more closely. His great joy from the way that they repented, the way that they turned from their sin and turned towards God, caused them to rejoice, and he gave him great encouragement. So Delray Baptist Church, I, I, I think the, the way we do this first and foremost is by allowing the word to correct us. Like that's what we need to allow the word to correct us. Obviously a huge difference between our situation and what we're reading is they had an apostle <laughs> writing, writing letters to them, right? Writing scripture to them, right? They, they, they have that situation. But listen, we have the very same word of God. Right? So I say that to say not every rebuke that somebody gives you is a word from the Lord. Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes it's incorrect. But what we do is we allow the word to correct us. We go to it and we open up and say, okay, is this, is this true? Are there commands in here that would be helpful for me to abide by that, I'm not been, that I haven't been doing? Are there implications from certain things, certain passages that, that would curtail this, this, this area of my life? So we allow the word to do that. And then when we're on the, the Paul side of that, that's, that's what we're leading with. We're leading with the word. This isn't me against you. This is, I think it's God's word. That's why I'm bringing it up. You were just like, that was just like a random pet peeve of mine. Who cares? But I feel like you're transgressing God's word in this way. And out of love, I just want to, want to bring it up. So we allow the word to constantly adjust and push on our idols and convict us of sin. And when friends challenge us based on biblical commands or biblical principles or biblical impl implications, we respond with godly grief. That's the first encouragement there is that we do this by allowing the word to correct us. But another one is, is that, that, that we want to indeed consider what Christians around us see and what Christians around us say. The input that spouses and friends have into our lives, our own kids. God by his spirit will correct us through his word and through his people. Now this text, listen, <laughs> hear, me, hear me well. This text isn't an invitation for you to invest your life trying to grieve as many people as possible. Right? That, that's not what this, in a way of, I'm just going to go out and I'm just going to start shooting from the hip and firing off, you know, my uh, list of, of grievances and, and all these things that everybody around me. It is an invitation, both to the willingness to help people follow Jesus and the valuing of friendships that help you follow Jesus in this way. I have a friend who is really, really good at this. Actually, I, 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 I'm not 
I wish I was more like him in this regard. There's times when I think, man, how would he handle this and what would he say? It's from a previous season of ministry, but we're still close friends. And I think what makes him so good at this is that he carries on in our relationships as if this was normal and expected and desired. Even if I never told him that. (laughs) It's almost like his framework for friendship, his framework for being Christians together is different such that encouragingly corrective conversations are just part of the package deal of being his friend. Because he knows that that's what it looks like to love people well. And because that's the case, and this is where I, 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 I'm like, man, I, I want to be, be more like him in all these ways. But he doesn't wait for the 15th time that he sees a kid challenging his parents' authority or in bold-faced rebellion. You know, pretty early on in the relationship, he'd pull me aside as a young father and say, hey, man, tell me, tell me how parenting's going for you guys. Like, how do you guys think about discipline? Like, what kind of things are you disciplined for? What things don't you? And where are you struggling? Where could you use help? Early on, he just pulled me aside because he's like, this, I don't have to act like I didn't see that for three, four, or five, six months. And he'd come and be like, hey, let's talk about that. Incredibly formative for me. He doesn't wait for the third time that a husband speaks harshly to his wife or interrupts her or talks over her in conversation. No, fairly early on, he's like, come on, <laughs> let's have a chat. I, I just noticed, I don't know if you're noticing the way that you're coming off, but man, you are just bulldozing your wife. Like, how are you, let's talk about what it looks like to, to, to love her as Christ loved the church. Let's have a conversation about that. He doesn't wait to observe a two-year pattern of someone posting unhelpful things on social media. No, nope, fairly early on, he might pull someone aside, as he did with me, and say, hey, I just wanted to talk to you about the way that you're using social media. I'm not sure those kinds of posts are, one, helpful for Christians in general, which combative spirit, but especially if you want to be a pastor. Brother, I just want you to realize there's some things you're allowed to do that you probably shouldn't do. And I was like, gosh, he's right. We need those friends. We need to be those friends. We need to value those friends. We need to move on, but one more consideration here on this point. How do we do this in an age, in a culture, where we are increasingly, easily wounded and triggered? How do we do this in a culture where we are increasingly, easily wounded and triggered? Can you imagine this scenario playing out today? Paul writing that letter to the Corinthian church? It would be leaked to the media. The discernment bloggers would go nuts. There would be a podcast made about it. Everybody would be up in arms. A lawsuit would have been filed for damages. And the Corinthians would have gone to hell. That's what the text is saying. Now, there's a difference between hurtful words and harmful words. Sometimes truth hurts. Paul wrote a sharp, hurtful letter, but it was true because they needed to hear it. The truth that he told wasn't like the the stabbing of a harmful, we can do that, we can be harmful with our words. 
what he was doing wasn't the stabbing of a harmful enemy, but like the scalpel of a surgeon who needs to remove a tumor. John Chrysostom, he's a 5th century bishop in Constantinople, comments on this passage. He writes this. He says, like a father watching his son being operated on, Paul rejoices not for the pain being inflicted, but for the cure, which is the ultimate result. I think that's right. We all need this. And, and listen, it's not just apostle and church. Paul did this to Peter. Just remember that? Paul, Paul did this to, to Peter. He, he rebuked him to his face. Galatians 2. Paul opposed Barnabas. Acts chapter 15. Paul told the Galatians for him himself, he says, if I end up preaching a gospel contrary to the one that I've preached to you before, let me be accursed. So this isn't just people up high barking orders at people down low. This is all of us saying we all need this. Paul knew that he needed this as much as the Corinthians did. All right, very briefly, number three. Joy and comfort are found in refreshment. So joy and comfort found in Christian community. They're found in relationships that we have with one another, co-living, co-dying. It's found in repentance when we're kind of walking together, helping each other follow the Lord, experiencing godly grief and not worldly grief. And then it's found in refreshment. You see him in verse 13, second half of verse 13, he says, And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So Paul has not only been encouraged throughout and comforted throughout this whole or ordeal, but the Corinthians brought joy to Titus as well. Titus was embraced by the Corinthians in such a way that he was refreshed by them. And this too was something that delighted Paul's heart. He had been bragging on the Corinthians, right? He says in verse 14, and Titus didn't show up and find anything to the contrary. Paul had been given a picture of who they were and what they were like and how he kind of felt that they were going to respond. And Titus didn't show up and be like, oh yeah, Paul was way off. He shows up and finds it just like Paul said he would. So when Paul and Titus were able to meet back up, he fondly remembered their obedience and his affection for them only grew. Paul derived great joy through their treatment of Titus. So Titus himself was refreshed and comforted by them. This is important because when corrected, we, we, can, we can rage in anger. We can feel bad and not change. Both of those would be worldly forms of grief. Or we could experience false guilt Another form of godly or of, uh, of, of worldly grief. We experience false guilt where we beat ourselves up so badly that we just can't move on. You don't act like the Corinthians if you're doing any of those things. Right? They're, they're not raging in anger at Paul. They haven't just been like, yeah, we feel a little bad and nothing's going to change. And they didn't, when Titus showed up, just kind of grovel and lay on the ground and be like, oh, we're dirt, we're dust. What? No, they were like, they, when, when Titus shows up, Titus shows up and, and they, they welcome him. They, they showed him hospitality. And they said, hey, when you see Paul, tell him thank you. We needed that. How are you? Titus, what do you need? How can we minister to you? 
You see, they're not so overcome with false guilt that they can't go into Christian action and refresh Titus. They're not so angry that they are combative with him. And listen, the Corinthians had issues to be sure, but throughout this passage, Paul is bragging on them. He has confidence, he says, that true believers will act a certain way. Right? Paul didn't say, Titus, hey, go find out what's going on and be ready. Head on a swivel. <laughs> You know, you're going in there, be, have some battle armor on and be ready to start ducking. No, he says, go, I, they're going to respond well to this. He says, I, I told, he says to the Corinthians, Corinthians, I told you the truth and I told Titus the truth about how you would act. Dear saints, having rough edges that need to be sanded down on us, having areas that need sanctification, having the occasional conversation where we need to be corrected, or rebuked, or challenged, that's not an indictment of your walk with Christ. Don't take it as such. No, needing such help is simply the Christian life. We all need to grow. (laughs) But I want us to all be so receptive and godly that people can say, you know what? You should go bring that up with him. I know he'll respond well to that. Husbands, your wife should never feel that she can't bring anything up with you because of the way you've responded in the past. That's not good. And you don't want that. person closest to you is not going to bring anything up because well, I've tried that so many times and ripped my head off. Wives, same thing. And, and if we've done that in past relationships, whether it's roommates or friends or spouses, whatever it is, we need to go back and say, listen, I've noticed you haven't, I don't know if you've been honest with me lately, and it's probably because of the way I responded that one time. I am sorry. And I want to give you a green light. To, to enter back into that kind of relationship with me. All right, we need to be those kind of people. Paul was like, I know the Corinthians are going to be that way. I, as a, as, a, as a pastor, want to be that way. As a shepherd of this flock, I want to be that way. I, I, I don't want people to be like, whoo, brought that thing up to him one time, not happening again. Unapproachable. No, our hearts are open wide. We need to be like that with each other in our relationships as well, when we act like this and receive others as co-heirs, not combatants, as family and not as foes, it is incredibly refreshing. We could join comfort in Christian community in this way. Let me conclude by going to J.C. Ryle again. I'm going to keep reading. This is the quote that I gave you at the beginning. Remember, friendship halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. This is in a paper he was writing. Listen to what he says right after this. Here's Ryle. Friendship halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. A real friend is scarce and rare. There are many who will eat and drink and laugh with us in the sunshine of prosperity. There are few who will stand by us in the days of darkness. Few who will love us when we are sick and helpless and poor. Few above all who will care for our souls. Does any reader of this paper want a real friend? I write to recommend one to your notice today. I know of one who sticketh closer than a brother, Proverbs 18.24. I know of one who is ready to be your friend for time and for eternity, if you will receive him. Hear me while I try to tell you something about him. The friend that I want you to know is Jesus Christ. Happy is that family in which Christ has the foremost place. Happy is that person whose chief friend is Christ. Jesus loves us as we are. That's why the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But he also loves us too much to leave us as we are. 
And he, in kindness, puts us all in one body to help us until we see him face to face. He has designed it so that joy and comfort are found in Christian community as we experience relationship and repentance and refreshment together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help in living out this word that we have just seen. God, help us. Some of us process this as we even hear this and think of ways that we have, have been hurt, have been harmed. Not just hurt in a good way, but harmed through tough conversations and through relationships like this. God, help us to, to process those kinds of things well in community. But God, make us the kind of people who derive such a great joy and comfort from this place. We could be strangers and opposed and enemies and, and, and have foes everywhere else we go, but not here. Not here in Christian community that Christ shed his blood for. Help us, God. Help us until we see Jesus face to face. We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.